The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, we do provide special one-time introductory offers. Call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, to find out more about that, or you can go to my website at miningstocks.com. I should mention that Chen, in particular, continues to uh, perform extremely well for his uh, subscribers, and he has, as I've mentioned many times before, taken a $5,400 investment in January of 2003, and he's parlayed that in to $1.2 million right now. He's done it with just his own, really his own ideas. Chen is a person who thinks outside of the box. He doesn't rely on other people to tell him what to do. He is a creative thinker. He works extremely hard, and he works very hard for himself and for his subscribers. So I think you would do well to uh, take advantage of a trial subscription uh, for Chen's service, as well as that of Rogers. And if I might say so myself, try my l- newsletter as well, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and for telling your friends. It is really gratifying to see our numbers continue to grow. Almost every month we have a nice increase in our numbers. Um, Many, many, many times greater than they were when we started this show back in March of 2009. Of course, of course, the most important uh, people of all, well, I don't know if that's fair to say or not, but certainly to make it financially viable, our sponsors, we want to thank them as well. And the sponsors for the first hour of today's show uh, are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North American Resources, American Bonanza, Palangio Exploration, Millrock Resources, Revolution Resources, and Uranium Energy. 
It is an extraordinarily exciting time for the gold mining sector. Gold today was up over nearly, well, actually, it was actually over $1,420 at one point in time. I saw a big hit in the gold price later this day. But I do believe that we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold and gold mining shares. I believe that there will be absolute fortunes made by shareholders of companies that find gold deposits. I'm not nearly as bullish on the senior mining companies as I am the juniors, but let me tell you, the seniors are doing extremely well. I just uh, happened to notice this past week, uh, if you looked at the earnings of Gold Corp, for example, up. Gold Corp up very, very dramatically, and the really fascinating thing that I noticed from Gold Corp's report uh, was that the uh, margin on the gold that was sold was an astounding $979 an ounce. That was their profit margin. Now, granted, Gold Corp is a little different than a lot of the other companies because Gold Corp has some uh, base metal credits that they use to lower the cost of production, hence the margins are higher than they are for most of the other major companies. But if I look at Newmont, for example, uh, they had record revenues of $2.6 billion for the quarter. Uh, their net income was up 38%. Agneagle Eagle also had record quarterly net income. Uh, and this, I believe, is good, really good news for the juniors because what it means is the senior guys, which are not that good at finding new gold deposits, are out there making huge amounts of money. They need to replace uh, the resources, the reserves that are being consumed um, in their production of gold. And they are going to be going down the food chain to the junior mining companies that are much, much better at finding the gold. And where, as Bob Hoy has pointed out on this program in the past, where the really big fortunes are made are with the junior mining companies, the kinds of companies that are our sponsors, uh, and we have some very exciting ones. In fact, we're going to be talking to Barkerville Gold. That's Frank Callahan, the president and CEO of Barkerville, will be with me in just a few minutes. They have a project up in uh, British Columbia that is now uh, they're producing gold there. And uh, what is really exciting in my way of thinking is that, uh, uh, is that Barkerville has the chance to grow uh, many, many fold uh, in terms of their production, um, you know, 50,000 ounces or so this year, growing up to 100,000 uh, in the not too distant future, I believe. But we'll talk to Frank a little bit more about that. We have Crocodile Gold, of course, is another sponsor of this show, and they are producing gold. Uh, and and so the the list goes on. We've had several other producers in the past, but then don't forget companies like Palangio Exploration, that's a uh, that's a sponsor of this show, uh, North American. Um, or American Bonanza uh, really is a, is a little company that's going into production pretty soon with lots of exploration potential. But Plangio is a very exciting company with possibly not one, uh, uh, possibly two uh, world-class discoveries, although it's a little premature to say the second one uh, is a world-class discovery. But they're, they're, the project they're working on now is doing extremely well. We had we had Ingrid Hibbard with us uh, a couple of weeks back to talk about that. So lots of very exciting things going on. And I'm really, really pleased to have the junior mining companies as sponsors, not because, not just because they're paying the bill, but because I believe that our subscribers uh, in my newsletter, I believe that listeners to the show are going to make a lot of money with, with some of these companies. Now, please don't get me wrong. There's a lot of risk involved with these companies. Don't go out and back up the truck and buy any one of them. I tell my subscribers, never allocate more than 5% to any one company. And that's especially true if you get really, really excited because 
uh, a lot of times, you know, your emotions can rule your, your intellect and we make bad decisions sometimes, but it's good to, to diversify because this is a very risky business, even in bull markets like the ones we're in right now. Well, normally I have, um, well, I should go over some of the other things we're going to be talking about in today's show. Uh, I did mention Frank Callahan's going to be with me very shortly. Uh, in the second hour, we're going to have Ian Foreman with Yale Resources. He's the president and CEO of that company, which we've talked to before. They've had some exciting news since Ian's last been on the show. Uh, we also are going to have Ian Lambert. He's the CEO of Tradewinds. Uh, that's a company that is also doing extremely well in their exploration efforts in Ontario. So uh, I should mention for the sake of full disclosure that all three mining companies that uh, that I'm going to talk about today are recommendations in my newsletter, and I or my family personally own shares of all three companies as well. Our main guest today is going to be Wendell Cox. Uh, he will talk about the pro-growth policies of certain jurisdictions in America's Popula uh, in, in America, and in fact, how those growth policies are serving to migrate people and businesses from some of the older, more industrialized, or let's say more established cities like the one I live in, New York City. We're seeing a huge migration of population out of New York State, and in particular out of New York City to places like Florida and New Jersey. Then in the second hour, for a few minutes, I'm going to have Joe Eskenazi. Uh, he's written a very interesting article in the San Francisco Examiner in which he comments on how the San Francisco unions have really driven that city to the verge of bankruptcy. I mean, it is really astounding the numbers that Joe will tell us about uh, when we talk to him. It is, uh, it is a problem not just for San Francisco, but for many, if not most, of the larger uh, let's say perhaps more liberal cities uh, and liberal jurisdictions that have been uh, more socialistic in their policies, let's say. But we're going to talk to Joe about that and see uh, what the outlook is for San Francisco and if he has an opinion about some of the other cities as well. well we only have a couple of minutes before we're going to have to go to our first commercial break. Unfortunately, Chen Lin could not be with me today. Chen is uh, at a conference, but you know what? When Chen goes to conferences, he's usually learning a lot of very, very valuable things that he uses to pass along to subscribers, to his subscribers, and occasionally he passes on some great information free of charge to those of you who listen to this show. Well, it's very interesting. I'm going to pass along a couple of Chen's comments uh, this last week that he made, or the last couple of days, I should say. Uh, just, you know, we just crossed the $1,400 gold market, and I can tell you, Chen called me when I was in Montreal couple of days ago, just really, really excited about gold breaking 1400. And I'm going to pass around uh, along to you Chen's remarks to his subscribers that day. Quote, Chen said, and this was, I believe, on Monday, he said, we are entering a new era that, this, that decades of suppression of gold price by the central banks is about to collapse. The real value of gold decided by the market is coming out. 1400 gold is only a small step of the sea change. I expect my record-breaking days, many record-breaking day days to follow. I had a big dream of gold and gold stocks to break out. Now my, quote, midsummer dream, end of quote, is becoming true, uh, end of quote. Chen also noticed that uh, uranium stocks are doing extremely well. And specifically, he noted that Uranium Energy Corporation, which is a uh, – Uranium Energy Corporation, by the way, is a sponsor of this show, uh, was up 21% the other day. Uh, we will be talking to the CEO of Uranium Energy sometime in the near future in this show as well. Chen also loves gold and minerals. 
Uh, and he noted that uh, that uh, the Sprott investment community up there in Toronto are now one, the latest major shareholder to own Golden Minerals. Uh, Golden Minerals is also a sponsor to the show, I should mention. They are also one of my favorites and one of my recommendations in my newsletter. Uh, Chen has three uh, silver plays that he really loves. Cordia Lane, uh, Alexico Resources, and Golden Minerals are all his uh, really great silver plays. Um, Cordial Lane is a producer, uh, and he owns a lot of shares uh, also of the January 20 calls, he said, on the December $22.5 calls and the $25 calls. So Chen is looking to leverage up, obviously, uh, by buying the calls on Cordial Lane. Alexco Resources is a company that's emerging towards production. It's also one that I have on my list. It's a favorite of mine as well. Uh, Chen really loves this company, thinks it has huge upside potential. And Golden Minerals, of course, which we've talked about on this show before, a, go- a silver and gold exploration play in Mexico, uh, as well as uh, Peru and Argentina. Really exciting company there as well, and we'll be talking to the CEO of that company in the not-too-distant future as well on this radio show. Well, it is just about time now that we are going to have to uh, go for a break here. We're going to be right back with Frank Callahan of Barkerville Gold to give you an update on that company's progress. Some really exciting things happening there, so don't go away. We'll be right back. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Trending Hard Times and the Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, as it turns out, many times uh, our guests are not here. They, uh, we didn't have a call in from Frank Callahan. Uh, I think one of the things that we're going to have to do from our office every day is to call to remind companies when they are uh, scheduled to be on our show because uh, I know Frank loves to come on and talk about his company. He's very proud about uh, about uh, about what he's doing with Barkerville Gold, uh, and he is very excited about it. But um, you know, he's also a very very busy man, and unless he's reminded sometimes, uh, well, things like this happen. So Frank's not with us. But uh, I would invite you, you know, uh, most of our listeners do not listen to this show live. We probably have 90% or so of our listeners, call, they listen, they download on their iPods and listen to this show, uh, you know, because they're at work during the day and it's just not convenient. We do have quite a few live listeners, so if there's someone out there that might want to call and ask me a question about my views on the gold market, on any uh, particular 
gold share, perhaps uh, I may be able to answer your questions, although there are so many companies out there, I would uh, ask you to limit it really to companies that are on my list. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to call uh, just to talk about the, the market in general, the equity market, the, the gold markets, um, the dollar, uh, are we going to have hyperinflation, deflation, any of those things, uh, are I would really uh, love to have you um, call in and ask about. Uh, I'm not sure I've got a message that says uh, Frank is on the line, but uh, I haven't seen my engineers tell me that. Well, let's just talk a little bit about why I am so bullish on gold and why I think the fundamentals are in place for a long-term bull market in gold. First of all, we have been living beyond our means for a long, long time. We have uh, started to print money uh, since 1971. Uh, we started to print money in, on a massive scale. Uh, and it really started happening in 1971 when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard, the international gold standard. Of course, Franklin Roosevelt had taken us off the gold standard uh, a long time ago in the 1930s. But when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, he set the stage for all of the bad things that have been going on with all of the bubbles. We didn't used to have bubbles constantly as we do now. But we have bubbles, unending bubbles, bubbles to end bubbles. And whenever there's a collapse, we create a new bubble. So uh, we are now in a position uh, where the, the global economy, because the United States is a leading uh, economic power and it's our currency that's used around the world, we're in a position for increasing instability in the global markets, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, financial markets uh, around the world. And we're seeing that now for the time being. Things seem to be better. Uh, we've had uh, new money pumped in after the Lehman Brothers debacle, after the uh, collapse of the markets uh, in 2008 uh, and, to, and into 2009. Uh, but all we've really done, we haven't really solved any problems. All we've really done is kick the can down the road, as they say, into the future. So um, what? instead, what, what we've done is we've created enormous amounts of liquidity. But here's the thing you have to keep in mind. When you don't have a an asset-backed currency system, when you have a fiat currency system, uh, you have a debt system. It's a, it's a debt-based monetary system. It's not an asset-based monetary system. So what we have is increasing amounts of, of a debt that's being piled on top of debt. Uh, and and we cannot uh, we we cannot um, sustain this the way it is right now, um, because it is impossible. Uh, it, is, it is impossible to do. I've got a lot of distractions going on here with uh, notes being passed my way. Uh, no Frank Callahan, and it's uh, been a an issue. But anyway, uh, we are in the in a process now where the only thing the makers know to do is to print endless amounts of money. Well, this is causing a huge loss of confidence in the monetary system, and rightfully so. Uh, on the one hand, we're creating debt to such an extent that it, that it cannot be repaid. We are totally insolvent globally and in the United States, and this is a problem that is being uh, that that uh, that pro finally policymakers and more and more mainstream folks are starting to understand the debt cannot be repaid, and they're saying, "Oh my gosh, what are we going to do?" Well, more and more people, not masses of people yet, most people don't get it, but the big banks, uh, let's say the uh, the central banks uh, like China, Russia, and some of the others uh, that are somewhat antagonistic to the United States, are starting to replace dollars with gold. 
But not only that, we're seeing large hedge funds. George Soros and others are also buying gold because they understand that paper money is worthless and it's becoming worthless by the day. So we're seeing a gold price rise very dramatically. Um, okay, we had Frank, unfortunately. Now he's gone. So I guess I'll have to keep rambling. Anyone have any questions, uh, feel free to call. So uh, the, uh, the issue is um, w w the debt cannot be repaid. Uh, and, and people are going to gold. Now, here's the point that I'd like to make that's really, really important with respect to Frank Callahan's mining company and a lot of other gold mining companies. The real price of gold is rising very dramatically. And I just mentioned a little while ago, Gold Corp had a margin on their gold production of over $900 an ounce. Now, that's unusual, but all of the profit margins for all of the major companies are rising. Then you have a small company like Barker Real Gold starting to produce gold with enormous exploration potential and the and a stock that's still a penny stock for all pur purposes uh, intense is really a very low price stock with enormous ups upside potential. What are the majors going to do because they're not very good at finding the gold? They're going to be looking down down the food chain to companies I think like Frank Callahan's company and speaking of Frank Callahan, I understand he's here. Frank, are you there? Just got here, Jay. I apologize for being late. We were a little late coming in from the airport. <clears throat> well, you know what it is, Frank, is we need to call you guys and let you know ahead of time uh, and remind you, and then we could have uh, done it by cell from the airport or whatever. But anyway, I'm glad you're here. Um, give us an update, Frank. You guys are now producing gold. You're selling Dory bars. You know, it's not just like a dream, uh, like you've had a dream for 20 years. You've been building this company for a long time, previously known as International Wayside. Where are you at right now? Well, today, um, today we actually well, we we poured uh, sixty kilos of gold and shipped it out uh, uh, about ten days ago, <clears throat> and today is the the day that the uh, remuneration sort of takes place as to whatever's <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, whatever today's uh, closes on the London fix, the afternoon fix is actually what we will be paid for the gold that we shipped out ten days ago. Um, so we're we're quite pleased. I think the London fix this afternoon was about. Uh, Fourteen hundred and twenty odd dollars. Um, so we're quite pleased about that. That we'll be shipping another twenty or so kilos this week, um, and it's uh, only it's one of those overnight successes that took about sixteen years to do. <laughs> yeah, Frank. Uh, I mean, you hung in there. Uh, how many companies have you and I seen come and go during that time frame when we had this horrendous bear market? Um, what, for the sake of new listeners, and we only have a few minutes, we'll try to squeeze out a couple of more minutes now since we didn't have you to start with. But what can you tell uh, people that are new? Because we have a lot of new subscribers that are coming in every month. Just give our uh, our listeners a, ch a chance to understand how many ounces of gold you're going to be producing, more or less, at what price, at co what cost now this year, and then going out in the future another year or two. Sure. So right now we're anticipating that uh, in the 12 months, we started pouring gold in uh, September of this year. So in the uh, fiscal year, September to September, we're anticipating doing 50,000 ounces for our first year of production. And that will be coming from two different deposits. That one's called the QR deposit. It's a 900-ton-a-day mill and facility. We just actually acquired that in February of this year. And the second will be coming from Bonanza Ledge, which is not quite fully permitted yet, but uh, the government's given us the go-ahead to actually push the road through and, and actually sort of start the pit. And the pit will be started because we need the road base, and that will come actually from the pit. 
Our cost uh, that we're demonstrating that's in the pre-feasibility study is, uh, is around $600 an ounce uh, uh, Canadian dollars, and um, which is trading at par right now. And um, for the foreseeable future, we just uh, news release was put out yesterday by our, the company and on Friday by the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange that we will um, we've they've approved us, uh, acquiring the uh, Goldstream Mill. This will be our company's second mill. It's going to go about 60 miles away from the existing mill that we have. It'll be doing low grade material. About four gram is what we anticipate the grade will be from that deposit. So. We're hoping to have that up and running about 2012, or first part of 2013, and uh, we hope to be in excess of a 100,000-ounce-year producer by then. Well, that's, that's really fabulous. Frank, are you going to have to raise some capital to, uh, for this, to acquire this mill? No, we're not. We're actually we're financially we're actually in pretty good shape. Uh, it's not our it's not the company's ambition to actually go and dilute the uh, the stock uh, any more than it is. We currently have about 58 million shares issued, outstanding, and uh, um, at present that is not in the uh, in the cards. Well, that's uh, that's reassuring to to shareholders. And 58 million shares, I must say, is really a very modest number, Frank, for having a, a producing gold mine. Congratulations it, to you on that. Yes, it certainly is, actually. We're quite proud of that. We'd like to sort of keep it that way if we could. Well, I, I'll tell you, your shareholders will be uh, very, very grateful if you can. Let me ask you, uh, Frank, I would imagine that, that insiders hold a fair number of shares, yeah, I'm going to suggest that we're probably a little, we're better than uh, 10%, probably you're in the 15% range of what's issued outstanding. I always like to see that because what it means is that the, the, your interest as a CEO and others that are running the company, uh, your interests are aligned with those of the shareholders. And I think that is something that cannot be overlooked in terms of judgments and decisions made by companies. I all, all too often, I think sometimes uh, the managements of companies are more interested in their paychecks than they are the long-term success of a company. But uh, I, I really congratulate you on that. Frank, you have a lot of, uh, just give our listeners a sense of the size of your uh, of your uh, interest up there, your um, your claim your claim area. It's it's really sure. huge, and there were a number of mines that were producing gold in the past. They're small mom and pop for the most part. Um, yeah, well, actually, well, Newmont wouldn't be small mom and pop. So there's um, there's seven former producing mines on the property. Collectively, produced just light of uh, four million ounces. Um, the the uh, and the property itself is about uh, just a little bit less than 30 miles long and probably in the neighborhood of about uh, four or five miles wide. Um, the, well, the, the belt itself is a continuous belt that, that goes that for that full 30 miles. And over the last 16 years, we've dealt with a lot of moms and pops that have actually owned the property, and we've gone through and negotiated to put this whole land package together. So in the province, it's one of the most prolific gold camps, and uh, we really haven't stepped outside of an area that's probably in the area uh, about four miles long, thereabouts, maybe even a little bit less than that, that we've sort of focused all of our energies on. And there, there's been four former producing mines, namely the Mosquito Creek Mine, the Orem Mine, the Island Mountain Mine, which was run by Newmont, and uh, the Caribou Gold Quartz Mine. And we're currently drilling on the Caribou Gold Quartz Mine. And then Bonanza Ledge is on Barkerville Mountain, which is the historic town that really led to British Columbia joining Confederation and the railroad being pushed west. It was a, a famous placer camp that when they came up from the California gold rush, the 49ers, they then came through British Columbia and then on up to the Yukon and to Alaska. So this was the mid-stop point on the way. 
Well, Frank, we, we're really out of time, but I want to ask you, do you see, with such a large, massive holding, land holding, do you see prospects of perhaps joint venturing or having some other companies come in and spend their high-risk capital to find some, some gold deposits and then share that with your shareholders, or are you going to try to just develop that whole 30-mile-long property yourself? At, at present, it's the, the board's uh, uh, mandate to actually sort of try to grow the company itself organically, so to grow within the property itself. Uh, the name of the game now is to <clears throat> develop more ounces and uh, to, uh, for, to the benefit of the shareholders to actually go and explore, and we intend to do that ourselves. We've had some interest from other parties to actually get involved where we provide a back-end clause in it, but we're not prepared to do that yet. We think we can go and develop this for the time being on our own. Oh, well, thank you very much, Frank. We are out of time. Folks, just to let you know, Barkerville trades on Toronto under the symbol BGM and on the U.S. over-the-counter market, BGMZF. Uh, recent price, about $1.38. Frank, I didn't check today, but as I mentioned, only 58 million shares, which is a very, very modest number of shares for a company that's in production. Frank, Frank thanks so much thank for, you so uh, for much. coming Actually, on. Thank you so much. Actually, after Zurich this morning, it went as high as $1.70. Oh, I'll be, well, that's good. Okay, well, then it's, uh, this is the way these markets are going, folks. I really do believe this is a buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares. Not just saying that because we have gold mining share sponsors. Actually, we have gold mining share sponsors because I believe that this is the time for gold mining. Well, anyway, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Wendell Cox. He's going to talk to us about migration of people from the state of New York elsewhere in the United States. We're going to try to find out what's going on, why that's happening. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Wendell Cox. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy eye opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk visit metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, InMet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. 
Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Wendell Cox. He is an international public policy expert and a principal of Demographia, an international consulting public policy firm located in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Uh, Mr. Cox uh, was appointed by Mayor Tom Bradley. Um, uh, he appointed him uh, to three terms on the Los Angeles County Transportation Commission, and he was also um, uh, worked for uh, uh, Representative Newt Gingrich, who appointed him to the Amtrak Reform Council. Uh, he has a BA in government from California State University and an MBA from Pepperdine University. Welcome, Wendell, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Really great to have you. Uh, you have a very, very interesting background, uh, that's for sure. Transportation is, uh, you know, as one who lives in New York City, I rely on subways. Uh, I, I hate really do hate driving into Manhattan. I try to avoid it at all costs unless it's a Sunday morning or sometime when there's nobody else on the roads. But, uh, but you, you have a lot of interesting uh, background, as I say. I Really, the reason I contacted you because I read a very interesting article uh, in which you talked about the emigration uh, of people from New York State to other states around the United States. So that's really the focus of what I want to talk to you about. But before we get into that, I would like to ask you if you could just share a little bit your experience uh, 
in working for Mayor Tom Bradley in Los Angeles, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about Amtrak as well. Well, sure. A pleasure. Uh, Tom Bradley, um, you know, mayor of uh, L.A., appointed me to the L.A. County Transportation Commission. It's an organization that no longer exists, but it did essentially the same thing uh, and more in the Los Angeles area as MTA does in the, in the New York area. Uh, we actually had uh, control over uh, the, the state highways as well, at least with respect to funding and all that kind of things, as, as well as over the, the transit system. Uh, the reason I got involved is because I was much interested in uh, developing a, a rail system for L.A. Uh, on the assumption uh, that we would reduce traffic congestion, which, of course, is the worst in L.A. in the country. Uh, and, indeed, my amendment to the 1980 Taxing Act uh, created the money that made it possible to build the first light rail line, uh, the subway that eventually went to North Hollywood, etc. But by the time all of it was built and by the time I was gone, I became aware of the fact that, that, that the building of urban rail in places like Los Angeles makes absolutely no sense. Um, the traffic today is far worse than it was uh, when the systems were planned. Uh, the transit ridership is lower or about the same level, even with the rail systems, as it was before the rail systems were built. Uh, and that's not to suggest anybody ought to be tearing down the New York subway system or the Metro North or the Long Island or New Jersey Transit. These are crucial systems that provide um, essential mobility, uh, like you say, to Manhattan. I mean, anybody that, li- that works below 59th Street in Manhattan and takes a car to work is, is either crazy or has no choice. So, um, you know, New Yorkers, uh, you know, looking to the rest of the country often are not aware of how different, indeed, how European New York is as opposed uh, to the rest of the country. Um, I'm proud also during that period of working uh, with uh, the L.A. County Transportation Commission under Mayor Tom Bradley uh, that we also were able to establish uh, some, uh, shall we say, breakaway transit districts that substantially reduce operating costs uh, in suburban areas by using private operators instead of the public operators. Mm. And as anybody that rides uh, the MTA system knows, I mean, you've got a terrible budget deficit problem there. Costs are way out of control, and we were able to do some things to really improve uh, the process. Uh, unfortunately, however, in the end, uh, the powers that be, principally the transit uh, managers and the unions, managed to get to the state legislature to ensure that we never did anything after that that was cost-effective. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you mentioned the unions, and, and I would, uh, you know, we're going to talk to someone later in the show about the San Francisco unions and what they've done to the finances of that city. But, but getting back to your uh, comment about why it makes no sense at all for Los Angeles, why does it not make sense? Uh, for a mass transit um, system. Well, one has to recognize uh, there really are two principal purposes for mass transit. Uh, One is to provide mobility to people that don't have cars and recognize that, again, outside the New York City metropolitan area, virtually everybody except the poorest have cars. Uh, There are very few places. I mean, you can find people in New York City that have chosen to live without cars and have money. You can find people in the the Gold Coast of Chicago and a few small enclaves in places like Boston in San Francisco and Philadelphia. But the fact is, when you get beyond those places, you have a situation where 94, 95% of households in this country have cars, uh, travel patterns are highly diverse, the second, uh, the, the second issue with respect to mass transit uh, is, is moving people to large employment centers. Now, Manhattan below 59th Street is the second largest employment center in the world. There is nothing else 
in the United States that is even one-fourth the size of the mm. employment center below 59th Street. And so uh, transit works only, seriously, where you have large downtown areas. Uh, if, for example, in the New York City area, where perhaps uh, one might note that 75% of the uh, commuting into New York south of 59th Street is by transit. If you look at outside New York City in the metropolitan area, where actually two and a half, where actually one and a half times as many people live as in New York, uh, you'll find that the share of people commuting by transit is very low. It's under 10 percent, and and so the basic problem is the the modern urban area has very dispersed travel patterns. Rail makes no sense whatsoever, mm-hmm. um, and the only place that transit can make a difference is to downtown. Uh, again, New York's somewhat different because you look at the uh, four, four of the boroughs of New York, not including Richmond, are uh, more dense than any major city in the United States. They are huge mm-hmm. densities, and, mm-hmm. and it makes it much different, and one just needs to recognize that New York is unlike any other place in the United States. Uh, you have Boston, of course, has a transit system, I guess, works pretty well. But it would be applied, I think, what you're saying is to the older cities that are more European in the, in the way they're constructed. And I it think, all has Boston. to do with downtown. I mean, it is all downtown. You go to the suburbs of Boston. I hate to tell you, people think about uh, Atlanta as being a sprawling uh, urban area. The fact is, outside Route 128 or 95, as they call it now, uh, the the population density of Atlanta is below that of the suburbs of Atlanta. I mean, the population density of Boston is below that of Atlanta. Uh, mm. So, so uh, again, a, a lot of analysts uh, really think of cities only in terms of downtown areas. Uh, think about this. I mean, only 20% of the employment in the New York City metropolitan area is in Manhattan. Or that every single job that has been created in the New York City metropolitan area since 1956 has been outside Manhattan. Uh, the city, is, you know, Manhattan itself has actually lost a couple hundred thousand jobs since '56, and there have been millions of do- jobs created, you know, from from Suffolk to Pike County in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, indeed. Well, do some of these same uh, principles apply then to Amtrak, which you've also had some experience with? Well, I mean, the basic problem with Amtrak is that it requires subsidies, and uh, we do not require subsidies in intercity transport in the United States. A lot of people don't realize that, but in fact, all of the airports, all of the airlines, uh, virtually the entire air system, with the exception of about a one-half penny per passenger mile, which, by the way, ought to end tomorrow, is paid for by the people that use the system. You have uh, passenger facility fees, you pay fares that cover your costs and provide a profit in most years uh, to the airline industry. So there's no need to subsidize airlines. Then you look at intercity travel by car. That's paid for by gasoline taxes that are levied only on people uh, as they drive. And so there is no subsidy required for intercity transport by car. Now, granted, there are subsidies required from general tax funding to maintain the local streets in Queens or Portland or wherever we happen to be. That's a different matter. But the fact is we have there's no reason to be subsidizing intercity transport uh, in the United States. And, and that's what we're doing with Amtrak, and uh, there are any sorts, uh, any number of proposals that would expand uh, those subsidies to some really bad high-speed rail proposals, which are really largely not even high-speed rail proposals around the country. 
So why do we have these subsidies when it makes no sense? I mean, is uh, it special, uh, special interest groups? Well, there are a couple of things. One, uh, the, the high-speed rail movement is largely pushed by international rail developers who are paving Congress with campaign donations. Hopefully in the new Congress that will change somewhat. And then beyond that, you have just an incredible uh, number of people that are willing to fall on their swords over uh, keeping a passenger rail service around, uh, which is really very hard to understand uh, when you consider that, for example, I've never seen anybody um, uh, start a movement to, uh, to, to, to require a particular kind of wastewater treatment plant, for example. Somehow, passenger rail has an almost religious following that's unbelievable. I, I would say, however, that if there is any place in the United States where passenger rail could make sense, it doesn't under cer- current circumstances, but where under certain circumstances it might make sense, it would be the Washington to New York corridor and possibly uh, the, the, the New York to Boston corridor. But to make it work, quite frankly, you've got to start with a new right-of-way, and, and that might make it far too expensive. I mean, you, you must not be mixing 150 or even 130 mile per hour trains with freight trains and NJT and Metro North mm-hmm. uh, passenger trains. Uh-huh. Well, it's, uh, it's a very interesting issue. I really enjoy transportation. I really enjoy riding to places like Washington uh, from New York City to, Bo- or from, to Boston from New York City and, and Amtrak. It's always uh, an enjoyable experience for me. I've always liked trains since I was a little kid, I guess, but, uh, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know. Um, you know I hope that people like you are influential, and, and let's, get, let's get back to some sensible policies. Now, I'd like to get on now to the, thing that, uh, to the article that you wrote um, concerning New York City. We're seeing, or actually New York State, you're talking about since uh, the year 2000 through 2008, one and a half million people have left, I guess, have migrated from New York State to other states around the United States. Uh, you noted that uh, New York State has lost about 8% of its population since then, and that that is actually greater than the percent in percentage terms than, uh, law, than Louisiana lost after the Katrina uh, yeah, no, I, so, think it, I think it is a real testimony to the dreadfulness of, of your public policies, um, the misgovernance that's going on in Albany, uh, the tax policies, uh, and quite frankly, uh, probably the biggest issue, uh, the housing policies. I mean, uh, le- uh, the, the, the numbers are incredible. I mean, more than a million people uh, in our report, and there's later data, which I don't have with me today, but in our report we indicated that I think New York City itself had lost a million one uh, hundred thousand people since uh, 2000. Now, granted, this is domestic migrants. This is somebody that moves from Queens, let us say, to Westchester or from Queens to Sacramento. Uh, it does not mean that the city has lost population. In fact, the city has gained population because you have huge amounts of in-migration uh, from international migrants, and you also have, of course, the natural growth of births uh, over, over, over deaths. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you have the New York City that's lost a million one. The suburbs, uh, you know, have gained an awful lot of those people, but still, overall, uh, the suburbs have lost as well. Amazingly, upstate, which nobody in New York would ever think of moving to, uh, Albany's actually gaining domestic migrants. Buffalo is not losing, uh, is losing at a third the rate of New York City. Rochester and, uh, and Syracuse at a third. So, so, and, and the big difference between upstate and downstate New York, despite all the issues with respect to weather and all that kind of thing, is housing. I mean, 
try to build a house at a reasonable price anywhere in the New York City metropolitan area. And I don't care if we're talking about uh, Suffolk uh, or, 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 or Nassau or even in the Jersey suburbs. The land use regulations are so tough and so restrictive that the price of land has been driven through the roof and the price of housing in the New York City metropolitan area is at least double what it should be relative to incomes and double what it was 20 years ago relative to incomes, largely because of these land use regulations that go by various names, including smart growth, uh, growth management, and, and, and a number of other names. Well, you mentioned in your article uh, high taxes. How, does, uh, how do taxes in New York City compare, for example, with taxes in other major cities? Well, uh, they're very high. I mean, you've got, you've got an income tax. Your taxation per capita uh, in New York City is particularly high. Uh, we did a report uh, for the New York Association of Towns a few uh, years ago where we looked at, uh, at, at uh, taxation rates uh, by jurisdiction within New York State. And, you know, a lot of people uh, have this uh, really inane view, including, I'm sorry to say, Governor-elect Cuomo, that we need to be consolidating all sorts of local governments. Uh, that's a prescription for increasing costs and increasing taxes, not for reducing them. Uh, and, and in that process, we looked at New York City. And, and you know, if there was ever a, a reason to not consolidate government, it would be New York City. There is no government, county, city combined, uh, in the country that spends as much per capita as New York City. Uh, so, so that's a real problem. Now, New York City has some real advantages in terms of the agglomeration economies of lower Manhattan and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, uh, who knows in the long run how well those, uh, those advantages will hold up. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, regulation. What do you have in mind there as, as one of the things that really hurts businesses in, in New York City? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, I have not spent a lot of time looking at the business regulation in New York City, though mm -hmm. clearly um, the Tax Foundation and other organizations rate the regulatory environment for small businesses and other businesses uh, as pretty bad in, in New York State. The regulations I'm most concerned about are the regulations that, frankly, do not allow the development of land. They do not allow, uh, make it almost impossible to build new housing on greenfield sites. If we had had the kind of land use regulations in 1947 that we have now in the New York City metropolitan area from Nassau to Pike County, or excuse me, from, from Montauk Point to, to Pike County, uh, we would probably have in this nation a home ownership rate of 40% instead of 65%. Uh, Levittown would never have been created, all that kind of thing. The fine life that New Yorkers uh, live in the suburbs of, of New York City uh, would never have come about and, uh, and, and that's a real problem in the long run and is a real competitive difficulty uh, for the area, which is, I think, one of the main reasons why people are leaving the area in such large numbers. You have uh, housing prices have come down, of course, quite a bit. I don't know that they've come down all that much in New York City. It's certainly not in Manhattan. In, in Queens, in my neighborhood, not much, maybe 5 or 10%. They've, they've gone down so far. 
But how? So we'd have to see a real decline in housing prices right now uh, to to get us sort of on an even par with other parts of the country, I guess. Yeah. Well, now there are places that are worse. I mean, you go to coastal California; it's at least as bad and maybe worse. Uh, but for example, uh, uh, generally speaking, throughout history since World War II, uh, we have seen the median house price in this country be about two and a half to three times the median household income. At the moment, it's close to seven in New York. And by New York, I'm talking about the metropolitan area. There are always going to be places like Manhattan that are going to be higher, and there are going to be, be some lower places. So the point is that housing costs in, in the New York area are about double what they should be. They want it, went up hugely during the bubble. They have not come down to the extent uh, that they need to in the long run. Now, compare that, for example, to Atlanta or Dallas-Fort Worth or, or, or Houston where housing continues to be two and a half to three times uh, incomes and where in-migration is just huge. And, and these areas, if you look at the overall national migration data, you find, believe it or not, L.A. is doing just about as badly as New York is, if you can imagine such a thing, in terms of domestic migration. And it has to do with housing affordability. San Diego, think of beautiful San Diego, which is losing domestic migrants faster than Pittsburgh. I mean, wow. the world has changed an awful lot during this decade as these, these overly restrictive housing policies that urban planners love and governments love have destroyed housing markets and are encouraging people to move to Indianapolis, which is gaining people from California at this point, if you can believe that. Well, I, if I had my druthers, I would like to live in a place like San Francisco. I love San Francisco. Of course, I love inner cities. I love New York City. I like to live here. But you're seeing the policies of places like San Francisco and New York that, are, that is really, really hurting us. But Indianapolis, it wouldn't be my choice. But I guess you're saying that's the importance of economics. How about a 3,500-square-foot house less than 30 minutes from downtown, new, $140,000? That's what we're talking about. You couldn't yeah. even buy the lot to put such a house up in the suburbs um, in, in New York. And so, uh, yes, this is exactly uh, what's happening. I mean, the, the point is a lot of people, and people like you and I, you know, that, that manage to get around and make decent incomes and so on, and we talk about where we would live and where we wouldn't live. The fact is most of the people in this country are not in a position to even think of living in the New York metropolitan area, unless they already live there, or certainly not in the San Francisco metropolitan area. And the fact is the vast majority of people in this country uh, are middle income. They couldn't afford to live places like this. And we all, I mean, I agree with you. I've spent a bunch of time in Paris. I love inner cities, uh, like to live in inner cities, and could if I, I wanted to, though I'm quite happy to live in the suburbs at this point. The fact is most people don't even have the choice of living the kind of life that you and I might prefer in the inner city. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I agree. I can understand that very well. You've mentioned, uh, you know, this this migration of people from New York. So where are they going to primarily? What well, states are they going? Well, they've been going. The the, the biggest uh, amounts, and I'm going from memory on this. I apologize, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, Florida, until recent years, of course, has always done particularly well. Uh, North Carolina is doing well, and South Carolina. You have what's being called the halfback phenomenon, where you have uh, people that are, um, you know, that that, that have moved to Florida and then moved back up to South Carolina or North Carolina because a lot of the same things that have happened to housing prices in New York have also happened uh, in Florida because they've got some pretty bad 
policies as well. The other thing, though, that's going on that a lot of people don't really realize is huge amounts of these migrants have moved uh, to the suburbs, principally in New Jersey, but nonetheless, a, a lot have moved to Nassau, Suffolk, Westchester, and Putnam. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, I know as a, as a taxpayer in New York City, we get hit we get hit very hard with state taxes, cities taxes, and then of course federal taxes. Uh, and a lot of people are going to New Jersey. I mean, people I've talked to and have known because they find the tax regime, you know, uh, friendlier. It's not that great in New Jersey either, and certainly property taxes are out of this world there. Uh, would you see then the major thing that our country needs to do, and I'd like to, we just don't have much time, another minute or so, but do you think the major thing we need to do uh, in a pro-growth mode is to is to reduce taxes? Are you, would you be with... No, no, I think the most important thing we've got to do is get rid of these awful land use regulations that mm-hmm. have doubled the price of housing for people in a number of metropolitan areas around the world and mean that if you make $100,000 in New York, you're making profit probably less than you would ma- you, you, that that money can buy you much uh, buys you much less than if you were to make the same amount of money in in Houston and so on cost of living is absolutely crucial now taxation is a part of that uh, but 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 this, this issue of land use regulation how it is distorting markets destroying housing affordability and raising the price of uh, the, the cost of living is one of the least uh, the, the least covered issues at the moment and is absolutely crucial. Well, I uh, I would love to talk to you some more. I'd like to get maybe just one more question before we go sure. to a break. Uh, we've had an election now. Do you think it's going to help us? We have Cuomo here in New York. Uh, those of us that uh, like lower taxes and less regulation, I don't think we have too much hope of that happening with uh, Andrew Cuomo. But but what about elections, the election results as a whole? Are you hopeful? Well, the, the election results of the, uh, as a whole are incredibly encouraging. We have, for the first time, a serious movement in this country that is in, that, that is interested in budget deficits and and and, and public expenditure policy, uh, and this is very important. We are, we have been spending ourselves into oblivion, you know. As and, and you saw this across the river in in New Jersey recently, where Governor uh, Corzine, uh, you know, signed New Jersey on for three billion dollars for a questionable rail tunnel under under the Hudson River. And when Governor Christie found out uh, what was happening with respect to the cost overruns and the and, and what it was going to do to uh, the state's finances, canceled the tunnel. Um, and and we've just had too many politicians like Governor Christ, uh, like Governor, excuse me, Governor Corzine, who just don't know how to say no. And they think when they take money from Washington, that's a good thing. When in fact, it's nothing but plunder. It's about time we stop plundering ourselves through Washington, and it's about time we stop spending money we don't have in New Jersey, New York, California, or Oklahoma. And so I am greatly encouraged and hope, only hope that the people that have been energized in this last election will be similarly energized to keep in the process for years to come. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on that uh, hope as well. Uh, I would just wonder if maybe uh, Mr. Corzine hadn't had in mind also 
his former employer at Goldman Sachs when he talked about that $2 billion rail program, but who knows? I admit well, I mean, the fact is uh, that, that may or may not be the case. The fact is that for every John Corzine, there are about 48 other people uh, from time to time. I mean, there, there are tons of other governors in this state uh, who don't know how to say no either. I mean, I happen to think that John Corzine was among the most spendthrift in history, but he's got plenty of competition. Well, he certainly does. Well, thank you, Wendell Cox, for your time. Very, very interesting. Uh, how can people keep track of your work? Do you have a website? We, we, uh, two things. I have a, a website, demographia.com, uh, and also I contribute a, a weekly uh, column to the newgeography.com uh, blog. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting, fascinating discussion, uh, Mr. Cox, for being with us. But folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Joe Eskenazi. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about the pension funds in San Francisco and how they have wrecked havoc on that, com- on that city's uh, financial status. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Valet, Inmet, Finross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. 
As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold, and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. The sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, Adventure Gold, Brigus Gold Corp, Golden Minerals, and Metanor Resources. Well, we just finished speaking with Wendell Cox about the uh, 1.5 million people migration out of New York State to more friendly places for business and for people to live, frankly. Uh, New Yorkers left for places like Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Conspicuously absent from the places where New Yorkers have gone is California. And that's curious to me because I love California, especially San Francisco, as I just noticed, uh, noted when, we, uh, when Wendell and I talked. I like the downtown, the areas, the more European areas in San Francisco as far as West Coast goes is probably, you know, has a nice downtown area. It's very unique for the West Coast, but New York has it, Boston has it, Montreal has it, uh, Philadelphia has it, cities to the east are more like that, and they're places that I really like to go to. So what's going on now uh, in California? Uh, why? Uh, I just had a note given to me. Uh, okay, what's, what's going on uh, in New York? Uh, or what's going on in California? Why are people not going to California? That's really what we want to talk about now. Uh, and with me, um, I have Joe Escanaza, um, and I just really lost my train of thought. My wife, my dear wife, came down here and, and started passing notes to me. Um, so I, I, so we're very privileged to have with us uh, for the second hour. Uh, Joe, help me out here. Your last name pronunciation? Eskenazi. Eskenazi. I'm so sorry, Joe. Don't worry. That uh, happens a lot. Well, it doesn't happen a lot that the uh, that your wife barges into your office and, and and puts a note on your lap, I suppose, in the middle of a radio show. But nonetheless, <laughs> but anyway, thanks for being with me, Joe. And and I want to ask you specifically uh, an article that I read recently called "Let It Bleed," and you're talking about the uh, the um, the finances of San Francisco, and in particular, 
the the unions, uh, the labor unions, and the pension funds that have been awarded to these uh, labor unions. Now, I just want to go over a couple of the numbers that I picked up from your article. You talked about um, the city's retirement cost for employees in ten years, the last ten years, has grown with something like to something or by something like I should say sixty six thousand uh, percent. Tell me how that could happen. That happened because uh, back in the late 90s, uh, you really didn't have to put money into your pension fund. Uh, you, you know, the investment, the market was doing so well that it took care of it for you. And the notion of putting money away for a time when that wouldn't happen uh, was, um, you know, w- what kind of a Debbie Downer are you? You know, this is fine. The market, you know, we're going to hit uh, Dow 3600. It's no big deal. And that's a, that's a mistake a lot of, a lot of cities made. Uh, the most dour among us uh, were unfortunately uh, proven correct uh, that these were flush times. Uh, so why, during these good times, San Francisco is unlike a lot of other cities. In order to start tinkering with the pension fund, uh, you, you, the voters have to approve it. So a lot of cities like San Diego, they were able to really do borderline criminal things with the pension fund, and that was just uh, deal-making between labor and the city. You can't do that here. So we as voters, we, we, we can blame ourselves for some of the positions that we're in, and we, we enrich the, 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 the giveaways uh, for, for our city employees during these good times with the promise uh, that you know, good times would continue, and if they didn't, things would work out. And, and you know, whenever someone tells you things are going to work out, they always work out for somebody. So... San Francisco having to contribute to its pension fund is one of the biggest factors here. In this year alone, San Francisco contributed $325 million to its pension fund. As recently as six years ago, it didn't have to contribute anything at all. Um, that number could go up to $406 million next year, and, and it could reach up towards $700 million or more, depending on how the market does. So that's a huge factor. Uh, as you know, health care goes up every year. That's a huge factor. Retiree health care goes up every year because people are getting older and uh, so that's 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 it in a nutshell all right well so i guess maybe what you're saying in part at least was this uh the lehman brothers decline of 2008 into 2009 the the recession i guess was was a big part of this problem then it is it is a big problem and the revenue generators for a city aren't coming back anytime soon. The property taxes aren't going to reach their prior value anytime soon. So a lot of times when people say, oh, the market's going to correct itself and we'll be in happy times again, that's uh, overly optimistic thinking. The city, the city is hurting for cash, and right at the time when you're hurting for cash because of this uh, market crash, suddenly you have obligations to pay into your pension fund hundreds of millions of dollars you didn't have before. So that's really a kick when you're down. Mm-hmm. Well, you had mentioned. Uh, now, let me understand for sure that what we're talking about are not are just really benefits. They're really not salaries. Are salaries increasing? Are they held stable, or, or how? And and has and have people been laid off in San Francisco to, to help to finance these pension li- uh, pension requirements? Yes, to everything. San Franciscans, San Francisco workers have gotten raises. Uh, that whether that continues is is anybody's guess. Uh, it remained. I mean, raises were deferred this year. San Francisco has recently adopted a two-year budgeting cycle, but in order to make this year's budget, uh, unions deferred uh, a quarter of a billion dollars in raises to their credit. However, these the term used around the city is givebacks. These aren't givebacks per se. They're deferments. So uh, down the road, you know, raises will come due again and. Uh, once again, it will have to either be negotiated that, that you don't get your raises or we'll have a problem. Uh, so 
I believe that the, the statistics in the article are that uh, about half a billion dollars in, in raises have been handed out uh, to a stable workforce in the last decade or so. When you do the math, it's not something outrageous. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a percentage under 10%. Uh, there have been some very high raises uh, for public safety workers, and, <laughs> uh, which is a very powerful uh, force around town, as you might expect. When you give out raises, you're, of course, increasing pension costs. Uh, mm-hmm. These are things that, that it's almost as if that wasn't factored in. That, <laughs> that was something that was very surprising to me. And something that's very interesting is that uh, San Francisco, uh, as part of our city charter, we forbid unions from going on strike. And in order to counterbalance that, we go to binding arbitration when, when uh, management and labor can't reach a deal. The, the arbitrator can't consider the, uh, the pension costs and other down-the-road costs of a deal. Uh, that, that doesn't factor into his or her um, adjudication. So, so the city's kind of at a disadvantage there. Uh, you, you had mentioned that uh, you thought in some ways that San Francisco is actually in better shape than a lot of the other cities. Uh, uh, yet, but, but at the same time, San Francisco doesn't really seem to recognize much of a problem. Uh, they're not trying to come to grips with it. Uh, what, are they, what are they waiting on, the tooth fairy or, or what? The Magic Pension Tooth Fairy has yet to make an appearance in the City by the Bay, though we did win the World Series, so everyone's very uh-huh. pleased about that. Uh, every other pension measure uh, on the ballot in California, to, to the best of my knowledge, did win. In San Francisco, it lost. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one, this was a pretty tough measure. Uh, it, uh, it was hard to sell. Uh, on the one hand, you can present a bunch of very scary numbers that are, that are accurate, but scare the hell out of people and are so dire that I think even sensible people think this can't be how bad things are. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the unions very successfully ran an expensive campaign basically saying uh, this is a terrible measure that will throw kids off of health care and result in people going to general hospital because they can't get health care and uh, hard work and union people will uh, be put out thousands of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And that was an easier sell than presenting complicated numbers about pensions, which are not sexy and are hard to understand. Uh, San Franciscans, you know, Jay, it's a good question. Uh, like any big city, uh, it's a very transitory population. And I'm not sure that voters really take into account the long-term ramifications of all the things they vote for. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure what people are waiting for. Again, Proposition B, which was a pension measure on this year's ballot, would not have been a cure-all. We mentioned in in our cover story, it would have transferred some 14% of uh, expected future costs away from the city and onto workers. That's $121 million. That's not nothing. But, you know, you're still dealing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars the city's on the hook for, no matter what. Well, maybe uh, maybe Nancy Pelosi can come through and, and socialize San Francisco's cost and let all the rest of us pay for it. Uh, maybe that's what they're waiting for. I don't. I don't know. think so, and I think that you're going to be paying for it no matter what. And you're going to be paying for the pensions of businesses that promised the pensions to their workers, and they're going out of business now. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. And mm-hmm. and it's you know the businesses can just declare bankruptcy and then back out of their obligations. The right. cities and states can't do that so easily. You know, San Francisco, even if we do declare bankruptcy like some other cities have in California, these are the first costs that have to be recouped. So it's, yeah. it's not so much, you know, a Democrat-Republican thing. And, and here in San Francisco, I think that we, we do ourselves a disservice if we leave pension reform in the hands of uh, Republican politicians who will never get any traction here in San Francisco and therefore have no credibility here. This is something uh-huh. that uh, really people ought to take on uh, from the left as well as from the right, because the numbers are real and it will drown us. 
Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, California is a beautiful state. Uh, San Francisco, I love the city, but you know, given all that I'm hearing, I'm not sure that that's really the place I'd like to go to. Do you do you see then some of the some of the most essential services that cities provide, like fire and police? Uh, are, are those programs at risk? Yes and no. Everything's at risk, but I don't think we're we're, we're not quite ready for Mad Max yet. Uh, I mean, the fire and police. The way I would see it is this, Jay, is that in San Francisco, again, we have a city charter, and that means people vote on things. Uh, people can put things into the city charter that do bind the hands of, of, the, of, of, of those we elect to, to, to look after us. Uh, if you put into the city charter that you must have this many firehouses open, that's how it's going to be, regardless of whether it, it makes sense to have that many firehouses. You're going to have to give this much money to the libraries, this much money to kindergartens, etc. So those things, that money is accounted for. The same is with pensions. What will happen is the city departments that don't have uh, a set-aside, so to speak, are going to be the ones to suffer first. The first one that comes to my mind is the Department of Public Health. Uh, The Department of Public Health does not have a set-aside, and the people who rely on the Department of Public Health usually are not driving uh, Alexis to the hospital. So, as always, it will will hurt more to be poor and marginal than, than, uh, than, than wealthy and powerful. Uh, how things are going to shake out once it um, it gets really bad, uh, it's hard to say. Some of the scenarios by very sober financial analysts I've seen talk about, uh, boy, you know, public school graduates graduating to California and, and there being no field for someone who, uh, who wants to be in public service, uh, who wants to be a teacher, a professor, a social worker, etc. I know that when you mention police and fire, what might happen is you, you won't have police academy classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maintenance is going to be neglected, and, and things will start falling apart, and people will wonder, right. why is everything falling apart? Right. You right. know, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm old enough to have lived as a young man in New York City during the 1970s, and I saw what happens when, when the cities fall on hard times. Uh, so I can kind of picture what could be going on and what could happen. Uh, in any event, we are out of time. I think there's so much more we could talk about. I uh, would like to ask you, have you looked at other cities at all? Yes. Uh, again, horrifyingly, San Francisco is, is among the best-run uh, pension systems in, in, in California. The people who run San Francisco's pension system, let it be said, they've done a good job. They are playing the cards that were dealt to them. But this mm-hmm. whole system is predicated on market returns. And in San Francisco, we did not... We decided not to put the money away. Uh, like we said earlier, if we put the money away, things would be different now. But that money was used to run the city. Uh, so you can look back and say, boy, I wish we'd put that money away to pay for pensions. But that money wasn't blown on a big party. It was used to, to, to help the, the disadvantaged, the poor, pay police salaries, etc. So uh, that was really difficult. I mean, if you're looking at cities like um, the, the state pension system is in bad shape, the University of California pension system is in terrible shape, they underfunded their pension system. Mm-hmm. Here in San Francisco, we did not underfund our pension system. We paid it. But now, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of money to pay. Yeah. Well, it's really difficult. It's just another issue. I think municipal governments are in, are in big trouble around the country. We've had a little bit of a revitalization of the stock market. We've had some 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 better times occur since the uh, d- the dark days of 2008, 2009. But no doubt, Joe, uh, a lot of difficult times ahead. And uh, what we're trying to do on this show is to make people aware of what's going on and the causes for them so they can best prepare their lives and uh, accordingly. So thank you very much, Joe. And perhaps we'll talk again sometime about, uh, about what's going on 
on in, in that beautiful city of San Francisco. Anytime, so, uh, anytime. And uh, I have no idea how old you are, but, but a significant portion of San Francisco's population are, are people who are... Um, who, who can remember the Abraham Beam era in New York, let us say, well, here that, uh, for that phase that, of their lives. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, folks, uh, that's all the time we got now for the, before the break. I'll be right back uh, in just a couple of minutes uh, with our next guest. We're going to be talking uh, to uh, Ian Foreman uh, of another really interesting uh, gold mining company. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, InMet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com sign up for jay's newsletter jay taylor's gold energy and tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program 
Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. Uh, I just realized the note that my wife left for me uh, that sort of befuddled me uh, actually was that uh, I forgot to mention a new sponsor that we have, Atlantic Resources, uh, when I um, introduced the second hour of the show. So my apologies to uh, North Atlantic Resources. We are appreciative of all our sponsors who make this show financially viable. Uh, and I'm also thankful to Ian Foreman for being with me now. He is the president and CEO of Yale Resources. This is a company that is uh, a client of Jay's watch list, and uh, as as such, they are uh, Ian is afforded the right to come on uh, every quarter uh, or so and talk about Yale Resources. But beyond that, I might just mention that Yale Resources is also a recommendation of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and I also uh, own some shares of this company personally. Uh, I like the company because I think that they have a chance of, of building shareholder wealth, and I think uh, doing so with a relatively uh, low amount of risk compared to many other gold mining companies. So welcome, Ian. It's good to have you back. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me back. And uh, I was alluding to the lower risk model. If you could just let our listeners know, those that may not have heard you when you were on previously, um, what you have, your business model is known as the prospect generator model. Could you just explain very briefly to our listeners what you mean by that? Well, the prospect generator business model is something that we've been evolving into. It takes advantage of us uh, having a, a great contact base and resource base in Mexico. Uh, we identify opportunities. We acquire opportunities by staking and or uh, agreements with underlying landowners. And then we advance the project to the next logical step, whether that be uh, to geophysics or to a drill stage program. And then we find industry partners to come on board and option the project from us. And in doing so, they also help with the heavy lifting of the exploration on the projects, which, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, is the, the, the high-risk aspect of our industry. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the it, it's very, very expensive to put drill holes down in the ground. That's for sure. So you're using your intellectual capital. You're going out and finding prospects, good early stage prospects, doing some early low capital cost work, and then getting other people to come in and spend their high risk dollars. Then you get carried uh, to a certain extent for quite a ways, depending on the deal, right? Absolutely. And then one of the things that's also important to us is is we're very. Uh, motivated to create partnerships, not, not uh, um, a, a, a user relationship with our, with our, um, our partners, in that we also, um, by becoming shareholders in our partners, we feel that we get to uh, benefit on the upside of any success our partners have. Right. Well, that's uh, that's exciting. I I think uh, you know. Whereas maybe a lot of companies are, are focused on one or two or three properties, and they're really going full hilt, uh, you know, doing everything they can to develop those properties. They're also going back to the market time and time again to raise capital and diluting shareholder interest. And I I know that no less a, a successful investor than Rick Rule said on this show uh, when I talked to Rick that he has always done better with prospect generators than he has with regular mining companies. So I think that's a testimony to your business model, and you're not the only one. I have a couple of other companies that I follow also that that employ this model more or less the same way you do. But I want to ask you, you have... um, you picked up a property the last time I talked to you called the Teneriba property. I guess that's in Mexico, right? 
Absolutely. It's in, it's in the, the Sierra Madres, uh, along the same trend as uh, the El Sozals, um, uh, Teotitla, uh, we've got um, Monterde, um, Ocampo, Dolores, all of these multi-million ounce deposits are, are in this Sierra Madre uh, precious metal belt. And our project is right in the heart of that area. And it's 80 square kilometers in size, and we like several things about it. One is, is that there, there, there are indications of gold mineralization literally throughout the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, a previous company had drilled some holes uh, in 2007 and identified uh, not only uh, high narrow, narrow high-grade um, 40 grams gold over 1.9 meters, but also uh, larger widths of, of uh, lower grade mineralization, which would ultimately, uh, the goal being to find uh, something that's suitable for bulk mineage, bulk tonnage mineable uh, resources. Okay. Uh, you, you announced a pretty good assay, uh, I guess a drill hole. Was this a drill hole? Four, no, it, 4. it's a 8. trench, actually. Oh, it's a trench. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we should distinguish because it's a big difference, isn't it? But There's nonetheless, very, very promising, nonetheless, uh, four point, almost 4.9 grams of gold. Uh, are you establishing a drill program? Are you going to do some drilling yourself, or do you have a, a prospects for a joint venture partner to come in here and, and do some of that? Well, the Tenerriba project might just prove to be a bit of a, um, a bit of a hybrid for, for Yale in that we're, we're getting a lot of market attention right now from, uh, from the project. Um, right now, the, the, where we put out our news release today of the, the 4.88 grams uh, gold over 10.2 meters uh, is also an area on the property in which we have identified uh, Vuggy Silica, which is an important uh, geological characteristic um, alteration mineralizing style um, for these styles of deposit that we're looking for, as well as uh, large uh, argillic alteration halo. But what we also like about it is, is this is an area of the project that has not seen a lot of work. It has not had any drilling done on it. So if we get to the stage where we're advancing the project, I am not adverse to putting the first couple of drill holes in ourselves. Mm-hmm. That certainly uh, is an option for us, and there's no reason why Yale Resources has to get a project to the drill stage and then vend it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, with our business model, we also want to be creating a bit of a, for lack of a better word, a, a treasure, I mean, sort of a, um, a, 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 a fund that mm-hmm. we then can also do advanced exploration on our own projects. Mm-hmm. And that still falls in line with our business model because as projects advance, they also get a bit more expensive, but they become more valuable and you get a larger... Uh, potential partner as well. Mm-hmm. So Yale Resources is, is graduating into uh, finding uh, a, a more uh, established partner in that mm-hmm. regard. See, uh, how is your funding situation right now? Well, I, I, um, the one advantage of our business model is, is that our requirements for cash are, are much lower than the average company, uh, being that 
Uh, for example, with Yale Resources, we have a fully funded 2,500-meter drill program underway at the moment. Mm-hmm. We are on our sixth hole, and the net cost to Yale is zero dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We are receiving a management fee, in fact, for running that program, mm-hmm. and we, we are getting prepared for uh, two exploration programs on our other partners' projects. So our requirement for cash is mitigated by that. And mm-hmm. we uh, have a, a large share position uh, at this point in time that's worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars in mm-hmm. our partners. So um, we, we have the ability then to, to sell uh, a little bit of that stock and, and create the necessary cash position that we have, that, mm-hmm. we, that we require. Sorry. Sure. Well, that's, uh, those are the advantages of your, of your business model. Uh, Ian, is there anything else you'd like to say? We do have to go now. Our time is up. But is there any, anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners before we conclude our discussion this time? Well, just, just one thing, and that is that we're extremely busy. There's going to be a lot of news coming out from Yale Resources. We haven't received uh, our first set of assays from, from our drill program. We're still waiting on some assays from Tenoriba. We've got some programs that are, are in the early stages of, of, of planning, and we've got a couple of companies that are kicking our tires that have the capacity then to option out some other projects that we have. So there's going to be a lot of news in the, next, in the, in the coming months, so please stay tuned. Okay, well, news is the lifeblood of the junior mining companies, that's for sure. And if we get some good news, your stock is recently selling at under 10 cents yet. I think it was 9 or 8 or 9 cents. A big day uh, volume-wise for you today. I should mention to our listeners, because I didn't when we first signed on, that you trade on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol YLL and on the over-the-counter market in the United States under YRLLF. Thank you very much, Ian, for being with us, and we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'm going to have another Ian. This one is Ian Lambert of Tradewinds Ventures. He's going to be with us as soon as we come back from, this, from the commercial break. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. 
As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com sign up for jay's newsletter jay taylor's gold energy and tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times i am your host jay taylor and i'm really pleased to have with me uh, ian lambert he's the president and ceo of trade winds ventures trade winds ventures uh, is a client of jay's watch list uh, but uh, as with the previous uh, company that we just talked to trade winds ventures is also a recommendation of my newsletter uh, it is a company that I think has uh, has great potential. That's why it's there. Uh, it trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol TWD, and in the United States, you can buy it as I did under the symbol TWDIF. 127 million shares outstanding, uh, more or less, a little, a little more, about 127.1 million. Uh, Ian informed me that they will be issuing another 9 million shares to raise 2.8 million dollars uh, in the near future. The um, Price was up as high as 38 cents today, but the market, the gold market, came off fairly, fairly strongly. It finished at 33 and a half cents. But uh, in any event, uh, Ian, I'm I'm very thankful that you can be with me. Um, let's uh, get on to your story. Yeah, it's great to be back, and thanks a lot for having me today. Um, you uh, you have your project is there in Ontario, and it's uh, it's right next to a very very large gold deposit, an open pit deposit called uh, Detour Lake. Uh, what can you tell us uh, is going on there um, since we last spoke? We had you on some time ago, maybe I don't know, two three months ago. What uh, what's transpired since then? Well, Detour Gold, our part, joint venture partner on one of the blocks we're working at at Detour Lake, has um, advanced their project to feasibility and has now just got all the approvals to commence construction of their project. And they'll be building a uh, almost $1 billion infrastructure development at Detour Lake to put their property, which is directly adjacent to ours, into production. Their pit is going to be about... Um, 
kilometer and a half or just around a mile apart from our existing uh, workings where we're doing exploration and developing a pit. Mm-hmm. Uh, same trend as Detour's property. So what we've been doing this year is um, we've done a bunch of drilling, and we're working on a resource estimate update that's uh, going to be released in the fourth quarter of this year. And uh, we're also now prepared for our plans for going forward next year, and I'd like to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about that then. Um, you, uh, first of all, I believe that, uh, so you're really on the same trend. And so the same, it's a, is it the same mineralization event? It's the same structure uh, that, uh, that hosts this, this magnificent deposit that, um, uh, next door to you? Yes, it seems to be. There's a, a deformation zone called the Sunday Lake Deformation Zone that runs right east-west uh, through this area. It's part of the Abitibi Greenstone Belt. And there's a series of on-echelon-type uh, mineralization structures that are very close together to each other, just a few hundred meters apart at their widest separation. And they're almost identical in terms of their metallurgy and their rock type, and the dissemination of gold is almost completely consistent. Our, our zone is slightly offset to the one the Detour is working on. Uh, we believe their zone continues out across our property, and ours is slightly to the north, a few hundred meters. Uh, and yet our average grade in our pit and in their pit is identical. Our recovery rates metallurgically are identical. Uh, everything's the same. It's all the same mineralization. Is your deposit, though, is it on surface, uh, or do you have to go to some depth to get to it? Well, we initially started our exploration. We were uh, exploring at depth, looking for a high-grade uh, mine like Placer Dome operated in this region prior mm-hmm. to this time, back in the 80s and 90s. But we ended up focusing towards near surface as the price of gold rose, uh, and we were able to find a lot of uh, tonnage of mineralization in the one-gram average grade, which is what Detour is putting into production next mm-hmm. door. So we're now uh, looking at a pit that uh, in, in pit length is uh, approximately 1.5 kilometers long, Oh. and uh, about uh, four to 500 meters wide uh, to a depth of about 250 meters at this point in time. Hmm. And we're, what, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what sort of tonnage does that, does that come out to? Uh, never mind, well, I guess if you've got an average grade of a, of a gram, you could figure out the number of ounces, but what sort of um, tonnage does that, would, that, would that entail, assuming it's economic? Well, we have two. We have two resource numbers I'd like to talk about. One is okay. the total resource that we've uncovered as a result of the drilling along our structure, which we call the M zone. And this zone uh, has uh, returned based on 126,500 meters of drilling. We now have a total resource, which is a kind of in third category, of uh, 3.77 million ounces on Block A, and another 237,000 ounces on the next property directly adjacent, which we own 100% of. Block A is 50-50 joint venture with us in Detour Gold. And there's 120 million tons of indicated and inferred category at about a gram average on the property. Now, what we did was further work uh, focusing on a pit uh, design was done by Watts Griffiths at our last resource update, which was in July of 2009. And, and they identified a pit shell that contained, of that total 4 million ounces I'm talking about, that contained 1.5 million ounces within the boundaries of the pit shell. Mm. That was done at $700 gold at the time, which was last year's price. Um, that's, of course, gone way up since then. Um, and that the tonnage in that pit area, I'll just refer to it in a second here, is about 44 million tons averaging just over a gram. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, as I say, would be economically viable at $700 gold. Mm-hmm. Now, we've drilled since there. We drilled uh, 
12,000 meters this year, and that's all being put into a, a new resource update that's coming, as I mentioned, in the fourth quarter here. And that's uh, going to add ounces within the pit. Uh, we've already announced all the whole results, and they're all uh, well mineralized. They're all in and around the pit area near surface, down to a depth of about 400 meters. And we anticipate a growth on our resource, uh, which will be published, as I say, before the end of the year. That is very impressive, um, and and so, but basically, these are numbers you're talking about um, that are really open pitable numbers, open pitable yeah, ounces the, potentially. Right, the last group, the last group of numbers I referred to are open pitable numbers, and out of the uh, so 1.5 million is already in the pit shell, but an awful lot of the remainder of that four million ounce resource sits underneath the pit. Mm-hmm. So part of the focus going forward will be to drill not only to extend the pit to the west and make it longer but also to drill on the north and south sides of it or the hanging and footwall sides of it. Mm-hmm. And um, that will give us an incremental mineralization as we drill that off, but it will also widen and therefore deepen the pit, and it will pick up uh, millions of ounces that are sitting underneath the pit shell today that will be incorporated as we can drive the pit deeper. Right, so there is a potential to expand. Uh, it's open in, in virtually all directions then, I guess. That is correct, yes. And so the uh, obviously, if you can widen the the walls of the pit, you can go deeper, and uh, so that's pretty exciting. What do you know about the exploration potential? Um, you know, going a long strike. Well, we we know it's open to the west, uh, and we don't know how far, but we definitely know that it hasn't ended. We've drilled uh, a 350 meter step out on this last go round. And our 2011 plans uh, are for the uh, first phase is just extended another 320 meters because we're doing 80-meter sections as we go along. Um, in addition, as I say, we're going to be drilling on the north and south sides of the pit to widen and deepen it. Um, and and this is a 50-50 venture with, uh, with your partner, Detour Gold, I guess, isn't it? That's right. Tradewinds works as operator of this project. Uh, they're busy building their own mine, so we're doing the exploration on Block A. We run the project um, going forward into... Next year, we're going to be doing 30,000 meters of drilling in the winter phase in and around the pit area. Um, that's a pretty significant uh, program for anybody, um, and we're planning to follow that up in the second half of the uh, year with a potentially another 30,000 meters. So we're getting very aggressive in expanding this pit, um, trying to drive ounces into the pit in the next year in, the, in incremental to what we're going to have in this next resource update. You're going to raise $2.8 million. How far does that take you in terms of your exploration efforts? Well, we're, we're very fortunate. We're in pretty good financial shape. We have $3.8 million in the Treasury. This $2.8 million will put us up over $6 million, $6.5 million. And then we're going to have um, uh, quite a few warrants that are all in the money at an average price of $0.19. Cents. They'll all be exercised between now and March of the new year, giving us another $5-plus million. So we're going to be sitting by the end of the first quarter of 2011 with over $11 million in the Treasury to fund all of our exploration. And Detour Gold's matching us dollar for dollar on our, dollar on our exploration. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, that's good. So I, I would just say that at $0.33 cents with 127 million shares outstanding, as you have a few more than that soon, but nonetheless, uh, for what it seems you have, the potential to build a multi-million ounce deposit here, it would seem, right? Um, that, yes, that, we're, uh, yeah, we're, this, we want to uh, uh, get this thing up to um, the 4 million plus ounce categories and prepare this thing for a feasibility study going mm-hmm. forward. And that would be what the timing uh, for that? I'm thinking two to three years from now. Uh, we, if we can add another million ounces in the next year, 
uh, we're making making good progress, and that'll stimulate us to move towards doing a preliminary economic ana- uh, assessment report by early of 2012. Uh, that'll drive more drilling uh, to try and push it to four million ounces, and I can see a you know a feasibility study being done three years from now. Well, uh, I know we only have less than a minute left, but I know that uh, your partner there, Detour Gold, uh, that they have received their mine permits now, and I guess that's a, that's a very important step, isn't it? And it has uh, some positive implications for you. Well, yeah, a very good final point for us to make is is that Detour is doing what, a, a lot of what we call the heavy lifting. They're getting all the uh, infrastructure development. They're getting the power uh, transmission lines in. They're getting all of the environmental assessment uh, stuff cleared. They're figuring out the metallurgy, and they'll be learning how to mine this stuff as we go forward, and we'll be able to piggyback on all, everything they're doing. Well, that's, that's, very, that's terrific. It, it's really a good story. Thank you so much, Ian, for sharing it with us, and I've got to take another look at this for a possible inclusion in my newsletter, I must say. Well, thank you so much again, and we'll look forward to talking to you in the near future. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with a wrap-up on today's show. Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions for taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com sign up for jay's newsletter jay taylor's gold energy and tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program 
Welcome back to Trending Hard Times and Good Times. As happens so often, this last segment gets squeezed. We uh, go over time with our previous guests, and so Roger Wiegand comes on with me, and he has all of about uh, 30 seconds to comment. But, uh, Roger, I'd like to just pick your brains a little bit on the um, on gold and the dollar. We've seen the $1,400 gold now. Gold got hit hard in today's trading. Where did it finish? Uh, it closed at um, 1410 in after hours. December futures 1392 has come down some more. Trading range $42. It did hit a high today of $1424. Mm, okay. So we're, we're back now, at 1392, but this is a normal correction. Okay, uh, Roger. With that though, has come a stronger dollar. Stronger. I use that in uh, tongue in cheek, but the dollar has. Uh, you know, we saw a low in the dollar. What, what get down below seventy five at some point? Didn't it seventy two or something like that in uh, in two thousand and nine? Yeah, in fact, it, it might have gone even under seventy, as I remember briefly. I could be mistaken on that, mm-hmm. but it has recovered. It, it went a lot higher, well over eighty, but now it's today at seventy seven eighty seven. Uh, today up about one percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a little less than one percent. Uh, this is a normal reaction, uh, inverse reaction to the commodities. Well, we, you know, we hear a lot of talk about a weak dollar, yet the dollar has, um, you know, we've seen gold go up along with the dollar because the gold is going up against all currencies, it seems. But as I look at the chart, Roger, we've had an uptrend in the dollar. If you draw a line through the bottom points of the dollar since the lows of 2008 or so, um, do you uh, one interesting idea that comes from Brian Rich of the Weiss Group? Brian is suggesting that you know the United States can't get China to revalue upwards their currency value, and so he suggests there's going to be a co- uh, a concerted effort on the part of the G4, basically. Uh, to drive the dollar up relative to the yen, and in that way, the dollar rises, and the Chinese who attach uh, their currency to the dollar, uh, the renminbi will also rise in value, and that's a way to to get the Chinese. Uh, maybe they don't like it, but that's a way uh, to sort of force the Chinese to revalue upwards their currency. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I get the drift of the idea, but application and execution is another story. I think. If you look at the weekly dollar chart right now, there was a bottom at 74, a double bull bottom. It's basing. It could go a little further down yet and then come back in a little bit of a technical rebound. But at this time of year, I, I want to emphasize that most markets are either in transition now or about to be. Uh, we see the, the commodities and the gold and silver peaking and topping out this week at the very latest, probably on Monday. And also, uh, uh, stocks would be selling off at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the inverse trade, the dollar, which sometimes is inverse and sometimes it isn't, uh, I think can go back to as high as 80, but I'm thinking 78 and a half probably. All right, Roger. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. I want to just remind our listeners that you can take advantage of special trial offers for Roger's letter, Roger uh, Chen Lin's letter, as well as my own call, Claudio Bossi in New York, 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. Go to miningstocks.com. You can do that as well. Should tell you that next week our special guests are going to be Dr. Larry Parks, who is a real gold bug and an old friend of mine that goes way back. Larry knows the argument for gold as well as anyone alive on the on the face of the earth. Eric Sprott will be with us. Eric Sprott 
investor extraordinaire from Canada and uh, really invested in mining shares is going to be with us as well. I want to thank our staff at Voice America again, Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, Ruben Colombo, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thank you for listening to this show and making this the most popular show on the Voice America channel, uh, business channel. Thank you very much. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view.